Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 95. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No, that's right. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims to the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy i'm beth we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime also the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Dale Devon Chenette, a black man who became known as the bathtub killer after two women at the same apartment complex in Arlington, Texas in 1996 were found dead in half-filled bathtubs. All right, but before we get into it, how you doing? I'm okay, still keeping pretty damn busy, uh, Mm -hmm. but I can't really complain. How are you? Yeah, uh, I I would say the same. And I do want to say this, like this COVID stuff 
really has all of our lives like turned upside down in yeah. case you hadn't noticed. And uh, <laughs> what? Are you kidding yeah, me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, What's yeah. happening? You're telling me. And I am really like burnt out. And um, I listened to a podcast with Bridget Todd. We shouted it out a couple episodes ago of No Girls on the Internet. And she was talking about how like she was her episode was focused on millennials, but how millennials are burnt out because our work, our children's school, our marriages, our home, all of those things were in separate lanes before. And now they're all like blended together. together. And so it feels like the to-do list is just never ending. And yeah, so I'm burnt out. However, I bought myself some roller skates on Amazon a couple of weeks ago. They came yesterday and I've been rolling around for the past two days, awesome. uh, having so much fun. I can't do any tricks yet, but I have not broken my neck. So, well, good. <laughs> yeah. So, are they they actual roller skates or are they roller blades? They are actual roller skates. Oh, cool. cool oh, cool, cool. yes. So, whew. so stay tuned for the chronicles of skating, Wendy. Skating, uh, Wendy. <laughs> So now we're going to get into some listener letters. Oh, hello, angels. Thank you. Thank you for that. (laughs) Well, what's in the bag, Beth? We got an Instagram message from Leanne, a.k.a. Lana the Llama, Mm -hmm. who said, Hello, I meant to email earlier, but was shook by another listener's letter with almost the same Twitter handle. Alana the Llama. That's right. (laughs) And didn't want to ride on their coattails. However, I want to let you know how much I enjoy your rapport and banter so much, especially during this time. So had to write in. Thank you. Thank you so much. So sweet. Yeah, it is. And they go on to say, I honestly believed serial killers were only cis white males to the point of always sitting with another race on the train home at night to be safe from murder. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good one. That's That's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for bringing these cases to my attention and for the sympathetic and pragmatic approach. I particularly like the timestamp information so I can go back for specific information. And that you can thank Wendy for because she does the timestamps. So hip hop air horns to Wendy. Oh no no no! Hip, these are for Lana the Llama. Oh yeah, thank you. And and Lana the Llama. <laughs> yeah. I'm double that one up. There you go. Thank you yeah, thank so you. much. Um, we don't have any new patrons this week. That's okay. You, I will spare you my singing, but shout out to all the current patrons that we have in our patrons yeah. and all of our listeners who have been rocking with us and support the show. We, we can't do this without you and we yep. wouldn't do it without you. So thank you. <laughs> I don't know. We might. <laughs> Talking into the yeah, air yeah. all by ourselves. Who knows? Know. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I just want to give everybody a shout out. Everybody's struggling with something uh, these days. COVID, job loss, loss of loved ones, dealing with fires, hurricanes. Thoughts and prayers to everybody who can hear the sound of my voice. We just appreciate everybody and are hoping we can get through the rest of this year in one piece, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So hip hop airports to everybody listening. So now we're going to take a quick break and we'll get into the story when we come back. 
Imagine this, your phone rings, and it's a cannibalistic serial killer who claims to have murdered dozens of people. I just pulled my pocket knife and stabbed her in the neck. I've interviewed hundreds of serial killers, mass murderers, and teen killers. Are you remorseful for your crimes? Hell no, remorseful for suckers. My name is Phil Chalmers, and I'm a serial killer profiler, true crime writer, and homicide police trainer. How many murders are you responsible for? I killed 33. Once I get them talking, we can solve cold cases, get confessions, and bring closure to hurting families. I found your sister's killer. I want to see him face to face. Listen to Where the Bodies Are Buried, a true crime podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, we're back. Remind us who we're talking about, Beth. Today we're talking about Dale Devon Chenette, also known as the Bathtub Killer, a black man who terrorized the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas in the mid to late 1990s. All right, let's get into some stats. <laughs> Dale Devon Chenette was born on May 7th, 1973 in Wachita Parish, Louisiana. Court records said he was Hispanic. I don't know where they got that from. I think more appropriate. <laughs> he's a light-skinned black man, so Yeah, he is. <laughs> you know, their their eyes might have deceived them. If he was Latinx, I didn't see any evidence of that. Um, but he described himself as a biracial Cajun. Um, his crimes, we'll get into that later. His crimes occurred in Arlington, Texas. His victims were speak their names, Christine Vu, 26, rest in power, and 20-year-old Wendy Prescott, um, rest in power queens. Those were the murder victims. But he also had some rape victims um, in his wake. And the ones we know about are Chima Simone Benson, Jocelyn Howard, Adrian Fields, uh, Keisha Ricks, and Cicely Stinson. Um, his crimes were sexually motivated, and his MO was to sneak into women's homes, bind them with duct tape, beat them, and drown them in the bathtubs. His crimes occurred from September 1996 to October 1999, and a jury convicted Chinette of the capital murder of Wendy Prescott in January 2003 and sentenced him to death. Chinette was charged with Vu's murder but was not tried, and he died by lethal injection in Texas in February 2009. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, we have two locations to talk about in this one. Oh. The first is Monroe in Washita Parish, Louisiana, where Dale Chenette grew up. Washita Parish was the home to many different indigenous groups in the thousands of years before Europeans began to settle there. Mm, surprise, surprise. Uh, peoples of the Marksville culture, Troyville culture, Coles Creek culture, and Plaquemine culture built villages and earthwork mound sites throughout the area. There is a uh, filial mound site, which is located on a natural levee on the Wachita River and Watson Break, the oldest indigenous earthwork mound complex in North America. It is older than the Egyptian pyramids or Stonehenge. Now, come on, that is that is noteworthy. Pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, you can't visit it because it's on private property. 
But, oh, shoot. Yeah. But it, hopefully they're uh, they're preserving it well. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Dale Chenette described himself as biracial and Acadian, also known as Cajun. Acadians are the descendants of the French settlers and sometimes the indigenous peoples of parts of Acadia in the northeastern region of North America, comprising what is now the Canadian Maritime Provinces. The history of the Acadians was significantly influenced by the six colonial wars that took place in Acadia during the 17th and 18th century, and some Acadians migrated to Louisiana where they became known as Cajuns, a version of the word Acadians or Acadians. Fast forward to the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, as white people worked to reestablish dominance over the freedmen in Washita Parish. Elections were often won by intimidation and fraud as white people worked to establish white supremacy. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. Ain't that a bitch? And mm-hmm. uh, lynchings mostly of black men by white mobs in Washita, w- sorry, and across the South were a form of racial terror, terrorism, by which the white people enforced their dominance. A 2015 study of lynchings found that from 1877 to 1950, a total of 38 people were lynched in Wachita Parish. This was the third highest total in the state and the fifth highest total of lynchings of any county in the South. Oh. Yeah. And among the victims was George Bolden, an illiterate black man accused of writing a lewd note to a white woman. He was illiterate. Yeah. How do they figure? (laughs) Yeah. How do they figure he did that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Before he went to trial, he was lynched near Monroe on April 30th, 1999. Before he went to trial. And by the way, that number 38, um, it, the I guess the context makes it seem like it is it what was it the fifth largest of any county in the south, but that's just what we what was reported what we right? know about what we yeah. know of a, a lot of times these the, these things didn't always happen in the public square for everybody to view. Um, sometimes they happened and were unreported. So, um, so Dale Chenette grew up in Washita, but his crimes took place in and around Arlington, Texas, which is located between Fort Worth and Dallas, Texas. The Cato people, the first known settlers in the region, were victims of westward expansion. Lo and behold, they were minding their own goddamn business in 1841 when American settlers and the indigenous peoples got in conflict over the land. During the conflict, more than 200 lodges belonging to the indigenous people were burned. And the Republic of Texas signed a peace treaty with nine Indian tribes in 1843 at what is now Arlington. The city was founded in 1876 along the Texas Pacific Railway. The city was named after General Robert E. Lee's Arlington House in Arlington, Virginia. Yay. (laughs) You're on your own on that one. (laughs) It was a uh, sarcastic yay. Oh, okay. Then then I'm with you with the sarcasm. (laughs) I was going to say, you can miss me with that celebration. You're like, ah, you're no longer my favorite white lady. (laughs) Still are. I I, I appreciate the sarcasm. Take out everything I said. (laughs) 
Okay. The 1940s brought World War II to the forefront of the USA, and many families around Texas moved to Arlington for work. The war kickstarted a manufacturing revolution in Texas, and Arlington was the biggest aerospace engineering hub in Texas at the time. Automotive and aerospace development gave the city one of the nation's greatest population growth rates between 1950 and 1990. Arlington became a boom burb, what they called fast-growing suburbs of the World War II era. Or That's post funny. World War II era. Yeah, I like yeah. that word. <laughs> Arlington in 1996 was a city of 300,000 and better known as part of the suburban sprawl between Fort Worth and Dallas. And mysterious unsolved homicides were not common. Wendy Prescott's murder was the 17th and last homicide of 1996. Well, in uh, 2000.55% of the population was American Indian or indigenous. 6% was Asian. Almost 14% was black or African American alone. Almost 68% was white and 18% of the population was Latinx. January of 1996 was when the Amber Alert was created for Amber Hagerman, the little girl who was abducted in broad daylight, uh, which also happened in Arlington, Texas. Yeah, so the 90s, I'm gathering, were um, an uh, interesting time to be yeah. in Arlington. Uh, so er- now we're going to get into Shanette's early life. As we mentioned, Dale Sh- Devon Chenette was born in Monroe in Wachita Parish, Louisiana, May 7th, 1973. As a child, he was a high, he had a high squeaky voice that made him reluctant to read aloud in class, and he was known to be a shy and timid kid. But by high school, he had grown out of it and was known as a typical guy who liked to crack jokes, and he was not a discipline problem. But according to school records, he rated poor on self-reliance, cooperation, and study habits. At the time that he lived there, the population of Monroe, Louisiana was about 56,000. It was majority black, about 60%. And Dale grew up in Tanglewood Heights, an area of Monroe that was plagued by crime and drugs. But Dale was never in trouble with the law, except for one traffic violation he had, a basically clean record. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Although he did attend high school, I'm not sure for how many years or if he actually graduated from high school or not. Mm. But later, Dale worked as a machine operator, a warehouseman, a forklift operator, and a laborer. He was also a bouncer at a nightclub in town. He described himself as a jack-of-all-trades. He had at least one brother, Timothy, who has also been in trouble with the law, having been convicted of battery and kidnapping in 2015 in a domestic violence case involving his live-in girlfriend. A sister named April has also been mentioned in some news articles. We don't know a whole lot about his early life, but while he was on death row, he sought a pen pal and listed his likes and his interests. In those pen pal requests, he referenced wanting to get to know his sons. He said he would like to, quote, hug my kids take my son's fishing. One article mentioned two sons and a daughter. We do know that he got married, but we don't know when. In March of 1999, his wife Dion Kennard called police after Chanette became violent when she told him she was leaving him. He slammed her head into a wall and dragged her around the house by her hair. He was issued a misdemeanor citation for simple assault. He apparently boxed in his spare time and in a March 3rd, 2000 Fort Worth Star-Telegram article, he was listed as a super heavyweight. Wow, that's interesting. So he was a big guy, I guess. Yeah. 
Uh, well, now we're going to get into the timeline. So in 1996, Christine Vu, 25 years old, was living in the Pear Tree Apartments in Arlington, Texas. The Pear Tree Apartments and a sister and a sister complex across the street, the Plum Tree Apartments, had about 600 residents, many of them young, just starting out their careers and attracted to average rent of $463 per month. Five schools were within short walking distance, and the complex became a magnet for young female educators living alone. And uh, they looked pretty nice. Yeah. Christine was a third grade teacher described as having a very positive personality. In September of 1996, Christine was sharing her apartment with her boyfriend, Tang Ku. On September 17th, Tang returned home to the apartment, but he found that the deadbolt was locked from the inside, essentially locking him out. And it was my impression that you would turn the lock on the inside and there was no key to unlock it from the outside. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So he knocked on the door, but nobody answered, thinking perhaps Christine was in the bathroom, maybe taking a shower or something. He went back to his car to wait a little bit, smoking a cigarette before returning to the apartment. But the door was still locked. So he went to the apartment complex gym to use the phone there to call Christine. It was 1996, so not a lot of people had cell phones, but uh, she didn't answer. So he decided to try the door one more time. This time it was unlocked, so he went in. Tang found Christine lying face down in a half-filled bathtub. She had been hogtied with duct tape and her hands, ankles, and neck were wrapped with the duct tape. Tang pulled his girlfriend out of the tub, then ran outside and began banging on neighbors' doors, asking them to call the police. Detective Ed Featherston of the Arlington Police Department took the call. At the scene, Thang was inconsolable and screaming, saying that he wanted the police to find out who did this. Detective Featherstone spoke with Thang. He found Thang's story about coming back to the apartment three times before finding the door unlocked a little strange. Okay. In the apartment, there were no signs of forced entry and no evidence of robbery. However, a single fingerprint was found on the deadbolt lock. Semen was also recovered from Christine's body during autopsy. The autopsy showed she had been raped, strangled, and drowned. Christine's boyfriend immediately became a suspect, and as we mentioned, Detective Featherstone found his story hinky. But Tang denied involvement and willingly provided hair and saliva samples for DNA testing. The fingerprint that was found did not match Tang, and unfortunately also did not lead to any other suspects. Three months later, on December 24th, 1996, Wendy Prescott, a 22-year-old elementary school teacher's aide, was due to go shopping with her sister Skyla and share Christmas Eve dinner with her family at her grandmother's house. In 1977, when Wendy was still a toddler, her mother had been beaten and strangled to death in a Fort Worth park, and her murder was never solved. So Wendy was raised by her grandmother and her aunt Brenda. Wendy has been described as a very kind person who genuinely loved children. She was always smiling, and whenever the kids saw her, they gave her hugs. Man, that sounds like a just a man, sweet she really, person. A sweet person, um, yeah. even though those beginnings were really tragic. Uh, yeah. Wendy lived in the same pear tree apartment complex. Was it peach tree or pear tree? Pear tree. Pear tree. Okay. Pear tree apartment complex where Christine Vu had been found murdered three months earlier. And Wendy had been dis- 
disturbed by the murder in her apartment complex, but she reasoned that the chances of another homicide at the same complex were probably small. That Christmas Eve, Wendy never showed up for the shopping trip with her sister Skyla, so Skyla called their grandmother's house to see if she was there. She was not. Norman and Brenda Norwood, Wendy's uncle and aunt, then became worried. Around 11 p.m. after nobody had seen Wendy all evening, Norman went to her apartment to check on her. The family believed that she would never have missed the Christmas Eve celebration unless something was really wrong. And Norman found Wendy dead in her apartment bathtub, partially submerged in the water in the same signature fashion as Christine Vu. She had also been hogtied with duct tape. An autopsy later showed that she had been sexually assaulted and bound in this fashion prior to her death. Her cause of death was determined to be manual strangulation, with the possibility that her immersion in the tub also played a role in her death. Investigators were able to recover a high-quality fingerprint from a television stand in Wendy's apartment, and sperm samples were recovered during autopsy, but no matches were returned from law enforcement databases. Wendy's apartment was 150 feet away from Christine's apartment and was actually the exact same model of apartment. Wow. When Detective Featherstone arrived on the scene, he described the feeling he had while looking at the crime scene as deja vu. Mm. There were, again, no signs of forced entry and no evidence of robbery, although Christine and Wendy were both educators. They did not know each other. They did not have high-risk lifestyles. They were both women of color, and Christine was Asian, likely Vietnamese, and Wendy was Black. But police could not establish any links between the two women. Investigators learned that Wendy had been stalked by a man for months and that she had filed a domestic assault report when he threatened her and hit her. He became a suspect, but it turned out his fingerprints did not match. I do appreciate the police doing their work on this, though. Yeah, they um, did. Yeah, the killings, which the media dubbed the work of the bathtub killer, terrorized the Dallas-Fort Worth area and went unsolved for more than three years. By the way, I uh, read that after this happened to Wendy, single women in that complex were like, I'm breaking my lease. You could yeah. charge me. You could take me to court. <laughs> I am out of here. And that yeah. is understandable. Yes, very uh, understandable. The killings, which the media dubbed the, the work of the bathtub killer, terrorized the Dallas-Fort Worth area and went unsolved for more than three years. Needless to say, all the single women in the Peachtree apartment complex were pear, petri- pear tree. <laughs> in the pear tree and plum tree apartment and a partridge in a pear tree <laughs> apartment complex were petrified to sleep, take out their trash or to go to the mailbox. Oh, I already said this. Residents began to move out en masse. For several weeks after the second homicide, moving vans were seen frequently at the apartment complex as terrified residents moved out. Quote, I don't want to be victim number three, said one resident who was also a teacher. He may be living in the next building, for all I know, looking to see who he's going to get next. If he's targeting teachers, I'm out of here. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you, <laughs> I'm out. I need to survive. Um, yeah. And I don't think I can do yeah, that. Here, I so. think I would uh, have done the same thing. Yeah, Me too. That. I'm out. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, move out of your apartment. Get the fuck out. Yeah. Um, so, thank you was no longer considered a suspect, and detectives spread out and began looking at every male associated with the pl- pear. 
God damn it. Pear Tree and Plum Tree Apartment Complex. An air conditioning repairman who was not at work either day that the women were murdered became a suspect. A man who changed the locks in the apartments became a suspect. A man who lived across the hall from Christine, who then moved to another apartment after the murder, which turned out to be across the hall from Wendy, became a suspect. Man, I would hate to be that guy. I know. Like, fuck, again? I'm just trying to, like, live and do my job. Oh, man. But again, it sounds like the police are really trying. They not were trying doing to their jobs. Yeah. Pin it on somebody or get a no. false confession or any of that yeah. bullshit. They were just investigating. So. Yeah. Kudos to them. Mm -hmm. Investigators identified hundreds of residents, employees, and associates of the property and began the process of questioning and eliminating. Thousands of leads were followed up and hundreds of men were asked for blood samples to test for DNA. They were all cleared. On September 21st, 1998, Jacqueline Howard was raped in her child's bedroom. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> you can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.
That took my breath away. By an intruder who threatened a shootout involving the children if she called the police before he got away. On October 2nd, 1998, Keisha Ricks, a Dallas police officer, was raped in her apartment by an intruder who threatened to kill her and her parents if she called the police. To prove he knew where her parents lived, he correctly recited their address. That would have... Uh, anybody terrified to the bone that is yeah and that police officer lived yards away from jocelyn howard who had been sexually assaulted the prior month wow how brazen do you have to be to go after a police officer yeah yeah Um, uh that that's one that i'm like he must have gotten some kind of thrill out of that yeah Um, Well, let's keep going. Uh, On December 18th, 1998, Cecily Stinson was asleep with her two-year-old son in her bed. She awoke to the sight of an intruder sitting on the edge of her bed with her son no longer in it. When she began screaming, the intruder told her he would hurt her and the little boy if she continued. At one point during the sexual assault, Stinson hit the intruder and ran into the bedroom with her son, locked the door and tried to call the police, but the phone was not working. The intruder then broke through the door and ordered her to put down her crying child. She convinced him to let her get her son some milk, at which time she ran towards the front door where they struggled. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I was just riveted by you talking. (laughs) Uh, When Stinson's son started to hit the intruder on the leg, yelling, let my mom go, he loosened his grip around Stinson's neck, at which point she was able to get free, open the door and scream. Her assailant then fled. It was later learned that Chanette lived in the same apartment complex. Yikes. Oh, my God. Yes. <sighs> On February 23rd, 1999, 22-year-old Shima Simone Benson was asleep in her Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority house when she woke up to see a masked man in her bedroom. He had entered through her bedroom window and was wearing a stocking mask over his face, which would be terrifying. Oh, my God. <sighs> yeah. Um. The man told her, do what I say and I won't kill you. But when he demanded oral sex, she bit him hard on the penis. Uh, He then became enraged and beat her to the point of senselessness, then fled through the front door. After the attack, Chima ran to a neighbor's house because the phone line had been cut. And at the hospital, a rape kit was done and semen was collected. By the way, Alpha Kappa Alpha is a black sorority. Oh, I didn't Um, know that. Yeah. And uh, it's just, I mean, a sorority house, right? There's a lot of women living in it. And so it also seems like pretty brazen. brazen. Yeah. I feel like brazen is not a strong enough word to enter a home full of these women because somebody would notice something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I agree. Very brazen. Very, yeah, very he, great. He seemed to like to take risks. Yeah, and he's ramping up. Like he went yeah. from September, October, December, and yeah. he keeps going. Benson suffered contusions and lacerations to her breasts, groin, and legs, as well as severe head and facial injuries for which she had to undergo two surgeries to prevent her left eye from sinking into her head. Oh my God. Uh, he really did a number on her after. Yeah. Well, she did one on him, too. In yeah. fact, 
uh, she deserves <laughs> some hip-hop air horns. Now, uh, after this attack, a woman called police and said her ex-boyfriend had been stalking her, and she thought that he might be the bathtub killer. She had been one of Wendy Prescott's best friends, and she had actually stayed in the same room as Chima in the sorority house at one point. She thought the man must have thought she was still staying there, and she told police it should have been me. The sample taken from Shima was then compared to the DNA recovered from the 1996 murders at the Pear Tree and Plum Tree apartment complex, and it was confirmed to be a match. But... It did not match the ex-boyfriend of Wendy's friend. Police are still doing their jobs, though. Still working the case. But what a coincidence. Right? Um, Yeah. Love it. I love it when these kinds of things come together, right? Um, (laughs) However, not that people get hurt and die. That's not no, that no. Um, so, however, detectives now had a lead in not only Chima's attack, but also the murders. They had a physical description from Chima. The suspect was a light complected black male in his 20s. He also had an injury to his penis now. Um, police <laughs> were not certain how badly Chima had injured him, but enough to leave evidence of it. On March 7th, 1999, Dale Chenette was arrested in DeSoto, Texas, in connection to a break-in of a car accessory store. As a result, his prints were taken and entered into a database. It was his first arrest and the first time his prints had been entered into a database. Then, not long afterward, on March 31st, 1999, Shanette's wife, Dion Kennard, called police after Shanette became violent when she told him she was leaving him. As we related earlier, he had slammed her head in a wall and dragged her around the house by her hair, and he was issued a misdemeanor citation for simple assault. On October 26, 1999, 25-year-old postal worker Adrian Fields awoke at 3 in the morning to see a man wearing a stocking over his head coming towards her. Again, terrifying. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He leapt onto the bed and put a gun to her back, threatening to hurt her if she did not be quiet. We should rewind a bit. Uh, In 1996, Adrian was 22 years old when Vu and Prescott were murdered at the Pear Tree and Plum Tree apartment complex. She was single and making good money working at the post office. She would work hard and play hard. And after work, she often went out to the club with her friends. She lived about 10 minutes away from the Pear Tree and Plum Tree apartments. And when the news broke about the bathtub killer, she became paranoid that she was going to be the killer's next victim. She changed her entire routine to throw off any potential stalker. Her friends thought she was crazy, but she could not stay in her apartment anymore and ended up moving to Grand Prairie, just east of Arlington. Mm. The news of the bathtub killer died down, and after Adrian moved, she started feeling safe again. That is, until around 1999, when she developed a sense that someone was following her. She told her friends and family about this feeling, and although they helped her, coming to stay with her when she needed, they again thought it was just all in her head. One October night, she had finally had enough of being scared. She told her friends and family she did not want to be scared anymore. She did not need anyone to stay with her. She would not keep the lights and the TV on all night. She would turn off the lights and go to sleep and everything would be fine. And that was the night that she was attacked. Oh, my God. I know. Uh, Her attacker knew her name, and he proceeded to rape her for two hours. When she asked him why he did this, he replied, 
The devil keeps making me do it. When Adrian had been scared that the bathtub killer would get her, she had practiced in her mind what she would do if she were ever attacked. But she found that it wasn't the same when you're actually being attacked. However, she had read that if you are attacked, you should try to get the attacker to humanize you as it makes it harder for them to kill you. So she kept talking to him, telling him things about herself, asking things about him, trying to get him to see her as a human being. And it worked. He told her, you're not like the others. And he did not attempt to kill her. He left after pushing her to the floor. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. After Chima's assault at the University of Texas at Arlington, flyers were distributed, which police described the attacker as a black man between 22 and 24 years old with a large build, about five foot eight to five foot 10, wearing jeans, a denim jacket, and possibly a white t-shirt. Police returned to their suspect list and were able to eliminate two-thirds of the remaining pool, focusing only on the black males. At the same time, detectives learned of a new fingerprinting system known as iAFIS. After four years with no hits in AFIS, in the summer of 2000, Arlington police resubmitted the fingerprint from the Prescott murder to the FBI computer system, iAFIS. An FBI analyst found a conclusive match with Shanette's fingerprints, which entered the system in 1999. Police then learned that Shanette had lived at the Pear Tree and Plum Tree apartments at the time of Vu's murder. But he had no criminal records, so they had no reason to suspect him in particular. They expected that a man who did this crime was, at the very least, an experienced criminal. And in August of 2000, Schnett was arrested and a saliva sample was taken from him via court order because he refused. Mm, okay. <laughs> the DNA from Shanette's saliva was matched to the DNA recovered from Wendy Prescott's murder. Shanette also had an injury to his penis. All right. Shout out to DNA. <laughs> and good old fashioned police work. Yeah. Uh, Shanette's fingerprints and DNA evidence were also matched to the samples taken from Vu's murder and Adrian Field's attack. DNA evidence linked Shanette to a total of five rapes and two murders in the Dallas Fort Worth area from September 1998 to October 1999. Police believe that Shanette stalked some of his victims after seeing them at a nightclub where he was the bouncer. Adrian Fields had gone to that nightclub, and it was presumed that as a bouncer, when checking women's identification, he would select his victims and memorize their names and addresses. Which is so terrifying. Gross. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, I used to like wish that I had a photographic memory, you know, mm -hmm. so I could just look at something. But can you ima it? yeah, imagine how dangerous that would be if somebody yeah. used it for nefarious purposes? For, for like bad things. Yeah. yeah like Mr. Chanette. Uh, so now we're going to get into the trial. So Greg Miller, the Tarrant County District Attorney who prosecuted Jeanette in 2003, said he personifies evil. I've been doing this for 35, 36 years. I've had others who have killed and done bad things, but he's at the top of the list. Shanette mm -hmm. was tried only for the murder of Wendy Prescott. He was charged with Christine Vu's murder, but he was not tried. And in January of 2003, a jury convicted Shanette of the capital murder of Wendy Prescott, and he was sentenced to death. 
The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the conviction and sentence in September 2004. All of his subsequent appeals in state and federal court were denied. And I'm not really sure why um, he was never tried for Christine's murder or the rapes. Um, Maybe they figured it was a waste of time. I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's what happened. I don't know either. It would have been nice. Would have been nice. But um, I think um, maybe they had the best evidence on that one. Yeah, maybe 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 they were holding Christine's uh, murder just in case he was not found guilty of Wendy's. I don't know. Mm. See, what would we do without you? <laughs> uh, Chima Simone was instrumental in identifying him as the culprit, and she testified in the sentencing phase of Chanette's trial. During the punishment phase, various family members and a chaplain testified on Chanette's behalf. His mother, Connie, pleaded for her son's life, saying that he loved his two sons and daughter. And his sister, April, added that a life sentence would be punishment enough. Chanette declined to speak with reporters while on death row. Uh, So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, I'll tell you, he is D-E-A-D dead. Chanette's final meal uh, before uh, he uh, was executed was two spicy fried leg quarters, French fries and ketchup, and two spicy fried pork chops. Mm-mm. That is a lot of spicy protein. Yeah. And you know what I was thinking about something? Because I, I, th- I, they don't give it to you like right before they they execute you, right? Like right. They, ha- they have to give like wait a certain amount of time. But I was... Um, like before doing all this was just thinking it's your last meal before they like stick the needle or get get you in the chair. But there's right. people watching these executions. And like if you um, like threw up yeah. a bunch of food, I don't know. I mean, the whole thing yeah. is, is weird. Uh, weird anyway. But that's yeah. what I, that's where my mind went. Anyways. Yeah. I don't know if I could eat anything. Oh, Yeah. That would be hard. Maybe they could give it to me like the day beforehand. Hopefully, I, yeah. uh, you know, never be there. I want, I'm not planning on doing anything that will put me on death row. So, but well, I have these nightmares. <laughs> yeah, but it, that's kind of. I've always thought that was a really interesting part of the story. The, the last yeah. meal. Um, yeah. but then I, you just wouldn't want it to come up when you were executed. Yeah. When you were being executed. Yeah. yeah how embarrassing. I, uh, right. I'm, I'm here. I am dying, but then dying and throwing up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh. I, I think, I think the goal, I don't know if the goal is dignity, but I think some might, uh, I think there's an argument to be made that, um, the killing should be more humane than not. Yeah. Yes, and, I agree. Right. Uh, I think having somebody, I don't know throw why I'm up laughing. in the middle yeah, of throw it. Throw up in the middle of it would be uncouth is the only yes. word that comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when we were researching, I found a website. And it's devoted to uh, people's last meals on death row. <laughs> oh, uh, the whole website. The really? whole website. Yeah. Wow. Man, look at the internet is undefeated once again. <laughs> Whatever you want, it's there on the internet. Wow, that's great. Thank you. 
Sorry, so anyway, that was a long tangent. Go ahead. Yeah, that was a tangent. <laughs> so Shanette acted as his own lawyer in later appeals, and his sister, acting on his behalf, filed a three-page handwritten motion seeking a reprieve from the U.S. Supreme Court. It was turned down less than an hour before he was taken to the death chamber. And on February 10th, 2009, he was executed by lethal injection in Texas. Asked if he had any final statement, Dale Devon Shanette said... My only statement is that no cases ever tried have been error-free. Those are my words. No cases are error-free, end quote. Six relatives of the two murdered women watched the execution. He never looked at them. He was the seventh condemned inmate to be executed in Texas that year and the first of two to die that week. Wow. They're busy over there. Yeah. Uh, Don't mess with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. (laughs) Uh, Due to her injuries uh, suffered during the attack, Chima Simone had had to undergo two reconstructive surgeries. She is now a journalist and is also known for as a former contestant on Big Brother. Uh, She discussed the attack during her appearance on Big Brother season 11. Her story was also profiled on an episode of Cold Case Files, and she's currently a TV personality and freelance journalist. Adrienne Fields didn't have any peace until police called her in September of 2000 to say they'd caught Shanette. Quote, I remember thinking I can finally sleep now, she said. Mm. Shanette was actually executed on her birthday, and she said... Super poetic. Yeah. She said, quote, the day of my birth, he lost his life, so it's time for you to live again. But she also suffered from survivor's guilt, depression, and self-doubt for decades. But in 2015, she started ministering and telling her story. She also launched a website to empower women. Her message to other women was, you don't have to feel like you are alone, and you don't have to feel like life is over because things happen to you. She hopes her story will help others overcome their fears and find peace in surviving their pain. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. So now we're going to get into our takeaways. Uh, Well, 
Uh, we don't know enough about his childhood to be able to really identify if there is an excuse there or some kind of a, a explanation. Um, rape is a crime of power. It's not about sex. So at some point in his life, maybe he was a victim of sexual abuse or physical abuse where he felt felt powerless and that sort of um in never like that feeling um, was just imprinted on his mind and yeah. psyche. Uh, I read some of his death row pen pal letters and I thought it was telling when he described how he liked to pick out his girlfriend's clothes, shoes, and nail color. Uh, yeah. Control much. Uh, <laughs> he also had a history of domestic violence in his marriage. It's also unusual that he went from rape and murder and then like, downgraded, de-escalated yeah. to eliminate that element of murder from his crimes. Um, Jeanette was terrifying. Um, yeah. He was unassuming, I think some would say from looking at his photo, um, not really worthy of suspicion. But the fact that he enters Vu, entered Vu's apartment and likely killed her while her fiance was outside smoking a cigarette is yeah. terrifying. And if it's true that he memorized people's names and addresses just from checking their IDs, then that is also terrifying because <laughs> uh, that means none of us are safe. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, Wendy, um, can you please verify your address to pay back your gazillions of dollars worth of student loans? Oh, sure. My address is, wait a minute. What if you're, <laughs> you know, and, or, you or know, checking your ID when I you're know. buying alcohol or yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so shout out to the women who survived his attacks by biting his penis and then <laughs> talking him down to um, essentially uh, she humanized herself. Um, yeah. The reality is he left the families of Vu and Prescott in his wake. And who knows um, what could have become of those women's lives and legacies. An entire community was terrified for his uh, horrific crimes, not to mention the impact that rape can have on the mental and physical health of those who survive it. So yeah, those are my takeaways. What do you think, Beth? So it's weird because I had the exact same thought when I read that sentence about how he liked to pick out his girlfriend's wardrobe all the way down to what color nail polish she wears. Creepy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he he's a super controller. And we talked about um, how brazen he got mm -hmm. with some of those crimes. Yeah. And may maybe that's something that he got off on because he liked the, the control. Mm -hmm. maybe i don't know and yeah also it was weird how he went from rape and murder to just rape without murdering yeah uh, usually killers escalate not de-escalate right um and i don't know why he did that um uh, maybe he didn't get what he wanted from the murders which were pretty horrific yeah um if you think about how they were killed being hogtied hog and strangled and drowned horrific right yeah but maybe he didn't get out, get what he wanted out of those. They were dead. And uh, then it was over. Maybe he liked it better when he knew the victims were still walking around and he could still see them. Yeah. Knowing what he'd done to them. Right. And uh, Adrian Fields described how after her attack, when her friends were trying to get her to go out again and they took her to the club where Jeanette worked and she got freaked out because she felt like he was there watching her, even though she didn't know who he was. Yeah. And he was actually there. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And maybe he, he liked that. Maybe. Um, 
that kind of it's uh, part of control. the control. Yeah. Yeah. Control he had over women. And um, any case, I'd have no idea what made him that way um, because we don't know enough about his childhood. Um, and as far as we know, he had an, an uneventful childhood, mm-hmm. but we, we'd have no idea. Yeah. And I also wanted to say there was a lot of weird coincidences in this story, which made it kind of interesting. Yeah. I like this one. Hadn't heard yeah, of them before. Too. And I can't remember who suggested it, but we had a good time on this one. Yeah, so, we liked researching. That was a lot better than the uh, <laughs> Atlanta child murders. Wow. I yeah. Never I, <laughs> I have extra gray hairs. You know, somebody sent us a message and was like, you guys really should do Sam Little. And I'm like, oh, my God, I, I, I want to. We but, we wanted to jump off of a cliff when we were after researching. that Atlanta child Atlanta murders child one. Murders. I just whew, <laughs> yeah, it was we rough. bit off more than we could chew, and I I don't want to do that to y'all again. <laughs> yeah, not not give us a, about a year. I think. Yeah, there least. you go. We'll yeah, take we'll yeah. take another stab at uh, the big Kahuna. <laughs> maybe not so early coming back from a break. From a break, uh, yeah. <laughs> So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So, uh, terrifying thought, but if there is an intruder in your home, step one, quickly verify their presence. Step two, stay calm. Step three, determine if you can escape. Um, And this is something you should think about beforehand, like escape routes in your home. Like if shit got hairy, how am I going to get out? Where do I go? Where do I go and how? Uh, Stay put if you can't escape. Call the police. Keep quiet and follow instructions. And take notes immediately afterwards. And one step that should have gone earlier up on the list that I didn't get to was humanize yourself. Um, Like... um, Adrian, Adrian. yeah. Yes. If the unthinkable happens and you are taken against your will, do what you can to humanize yourself in the eyes of your attacker. I'll put the links to this that I got in the um, show notes. Studies show that it is difficult for many assailants to commit violence against victims who they view as people. Do not grovel, beg, or become hysterical. This behavior makes it easier for the attacker to view you as a weak animal. Try not to cry. Talk about your family and try to form some sort of bond with your attacker. Um, and uh, uh, we, I feel like we don't use this one enough. Take a self-defense class. Uh, so now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or any content about or by any marginalized or othered groups. So um, I just wanted to shout out Signs of a Psychopath. Have you heard of this, Beth? I have not. What is it? Okay. It is on the ID channel and uh, it is... 
Oh my God, it is so good. I'm going to the description page because I should have put it in. Um, It's a revisiting of the most dangerous killers in modern history to see which psychopathic traits they exhibited. So there, I don't remember this case, but there was a young black mixed race um, boy. He might've been 20 and uh, he wanted to kill himself and he was asking his mom for permission. And she was like, no, are you crazy? So he was like, fine, I'm going to kill you. So he killed oh my God. his mom. And they use archival footage from the interrogations. And they have these forensic psychologists analyze these people's confessions and behavior. And I have learned so much about a psychopath. For, I'm only on episode five, y'all, but uh, I might have but to. She's, re- she's got a degree now. I do, and I might have to retract my statements about Wayne Williams. Because oh my goodness! They're they're um, so manipulative. They yeah. um, don't really see people, human beings, as people. So yeah, when like they furniture, <laughs> yeah. So when they kill one, it's like, why are you asking me if I feel bad? Uh, yeah, it's like a, stomping on a paper cup. Like it's right. It's just so fascinating. Anyway, signs of a psychopath. It's on ID. Um, awesome, and it is so. I just good. found it and put it on my watch list. Please do. Oh my god, <laughs> that's right up my alley. I yeah. you are gonna love it. So what do you awesome. got? So I wanted to shout out a TV show called Surviving Evil. I think it is also on ID. Yes, it's also on ID. Oh, I love that channel. Yeah, it's the best. (laughs) And it's one of the shows that we sourced for this episode. The episode of Surviving Evil that I watched in preparation for this episode um, highlighted Adrienne's story. And uh, Surviving Evil is hosted by Charisma Carpenter, who you might know as uh, Cordelia on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Love that show. Yeah. And uh, in the first very first episode of Surviving Evil, she tells her story uh, because she was attacked when she was 20 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah. So uh, here's the description from the show. It says, told in their own words, these are stories of people who have undergone the most appalling ordeals at the hands of evil. Somehow they found the mental and physical strength to fight back, outwit their attackers and escape. Mm, so thank yeah, you. Good show. Yeah, You're I welcome. did. I did watch uh, that episode that as episode, well. Yeah. And it is now on my watch list. So good. Great. Well, that's all for today. Where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. Well, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.